I had diabetes, heart disease, and erectile dysfunction, and I didn't want them. This is true. Uh, I was uh, suffering from substance abuse to the point to where I wanted to kill myself. This is true, right? I wanted to end my pain through attempting suicide. And I didn't want to die. Why not? What was it about my life and myself that I loved enough? That in spite of all this pain, in spite of all this discomfort, I was willing to get up every single day and do it one more time. Um, I've lost 10 friends to suicide and overdose in the last seven years. Wow. Um, this message is a message I wish I had said to them. I don't think recovery is like becoming the sober you. I think recovery is a practice in remembering who you were before the world got its hands on you. Welcome back to another episode of Plant-Based DFW with Dr. Riz and Maya. Today we'll be speaking with Adam Saad. So Adam Saad, by the way, was influenced by Rip Esselstyn, just like Dr. Riz was. Um, his story is amazing and so touching, and we really wanted to share this uh, message right now, especially when a lot of people do not have their support system. We originally had asked him to be part of our Lifestyle Medicine Wellness Retreat, which was supposed to take place May 2020. Unfortunately, that was canceled. However, this coming weekend, August 14th through the 16th, he will be part of the annual Plant Stock Retreat that's organized by Rip Esselstyn. So a little bit about Adam. In 2012, Adam Sutt's life was completely out of control, once weighing nearly 350 pounds and struggling with multiple addictions, serious chronic diseases, and mental health disorders. His life nearly came to an end when he attempted suicide by drug overdose. He checked into rehab, and with the help of his parents and a plant-based diet, he began a journey that led to a remarkable recovery. Adam is now a diabetes and food addiction coach for Master diabetes using low-fat whole food plant-based nutrition. He is an international speaker for the plant-based movement and addiction recovery movement. Adam has worked in recovery centers using plant-based nutrition as a tool for strengthening recovery and relapse prevention. He's also the founder of the nonprofit Plant-Based for Positive Change that is dedicated to advancing the research of diet and mental health addiction and is running the very first research study to investigate the effects of the plant-based diet intervention on early addiction recovery outcomes. He firmly believes that the simplest change on your fork makes the most profound change of your life and that self-love is the root of all recovery. If you have not already subscribed to our YouTube channel, make sure that you subscribe to listen to more great interviews like this one. Make sure to listen through the entire interview because towards the end, he talks about that research that he's involved in. Enjoy. Welcome, Adam. Yeah, welcome, Adam. We're so happy to have you join us. I'm so glad. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because I'm in Austin, y'all are in Dallas, uh, kind of like we're, you know, next door neighbors. Except, yeah, we are. We're uh, fellow Texans, but you know, we're so far apart, you know, it's uh, Texas is so big and... And I'm a little, I'm a little jealous of you because you have so many uh, uh, plant-based options in Austin as compared to Dallas. I literally just got back. I was eating at this place called ATX Food Co. I'm telling you, this is the best, the best food I've ever had. It's the best restaurant. It's all oil-free. Wow. And they just added a tempeh brisket taco to their menu, and they make the tempeh out of fermented black-eyed peas. Mm. And as a Texan, <laughs> this brisket. <laughs> is amazing and as a vegan this brisket is amazing <laughs> that's wonderful yeah so we uh we uh whenever we do get the chance to go down to austin we uh we make our list of uh, uh vegan places that we want to hit up 
Exactly. That's like an ideal place to go. And before we get started, there was one question when I, because I know a little bit of your story, but what year was it when you met Rip, Rip Esselstyn? I met Rip in 2010. That's when I met him for the first time. And I was, like Rip will say, I was, I was an absolute train wreck at the time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we, yeah, we've known each other for a while now, 10 years. Because I think of the effect that he had in your life and it was Rip Esselstyn who actually got to Dr. Riz here yeah. when we actually went to Whole Foods as well. It was a couple of years later, but yeah. uh, he was doing a, a Whole Foods tour and, and, I, and I saw him give a talk and that, that made an impression on me and, and got me started on the path of investigating a plant-based lifestyle. Yeah, he's a motivating guy. You know, he's charming and he's so well-spoken and he knows his stuff and, you know, he's, uh, he's, He's great at what he does. Yeah, actually, for me, it was a little bit of in, in, incredulity. I was like, "Oh, this can't be true." Yeah, yeah. So uh, I had to go and research it for myself. But you know, at least it got you know whatever he you know he said something that made me go look. And I and started and an investigation. Yeah, yeah. great. I love it. So we would love to hear about the work that you're doing with recovery and the study that you're working on. Um, for those that may, some of our listeners that may not have heard of your work um, and your story, can we start with uh, your story first? Sure. Yeah. So my, you know, my story starts uh, in childhood. You know, I'm a seventh generation Texan. Wow. Uh, so I grew up eating burgers and barbecue and I'm also Jewish. So I grew up eating bagels and blintzes as well. So it's like the standard American diet wearing cowboy boots with some chutzpah. <laughs> um, you know, I ate, I ate what my parents ate. I ate what my culture, you know, told, told me to eat. And, you know, when you're a kid, there's no questioning it. This just, this is, this is the way it is. And I had a great childhood growing up. Um, I rode my bike to school with my friends. My dad taught me to play baseball and basketball and football. My mom <laughs> taught me about the, the beauty of imagination and, and the, uh, the greatness of dream, of having a dream. And, um, you know, it was really, it was very, almost like a, a, a sitcom, or not a sitcom, but like a TV story type of uh, childhood. And um, like a Leave it to Beaver, you know. Yeah, it really thing. was, you know. Yep. It was like all my fr best friends were in my neighborhood. We all played outside every <laughs> single day. It was, it, it was a, you know, you didn't go in until your mom started counting to three type of thing. And, um, but growing up, there were a few things that like I had a real, that had a real profound impact on me in regards to the way that I viewed myself. And one of which was food. And, you know, for, because for whatever reason, I couldn't stop myself from wanting to eat bad food, junk food, starting age. You know, I, I mean, I don't remember a time when I wasn't criticized for wanting to eat junk food. And it was really un confusing to me because so much of this was in our house. I mean, when you're six, mm -hmm. I'm not going to 7-Eleven. I'm, I'm looking at food in my house. And so I didn't understand why if it was there, it was bad. And not only that... I couldn't understand why I was not able to stop myself from doing what was so easily done by everyone else, which was be moderate with it, you know? And the criticism from my parents led me to believe that if I couldn't do what they wanted, then I wasn't worthy of their acceptance. And when you're six, seven, eight, nine years old, your parents' acceptance is everything. It certainly was for me because they were my world. Everything centered around them. And uh, I began to believe that there's, there had to be something wrong with me for, not, for this inability to do that. And so I decided that since I couldn't stop myself from wanting to eat these foods, I was going to hide it. Hmm. And I used to take food and run into my bedroom and turn off the lights 
and sit in the corner in the dark and eat junk food as fast as I could. Like I remember sleeves of Fig Newtons, just like eating the whole sleeve as fast as I could um, because I was afraid and I was ashamed. I was so ashamed of the fact that this was a part of me that I couldn't understand. And I was so afraid that at any moment the door was going to open and my parents were going to see me for what I really was. This broken child that wasn't worthy of their acceptance or their love. Mm-hmm. So closet eating became a part of my life very, very young. And it started to, you know, really impact my, my self-worth, my self-confidence, my self-love was diminishing. And a few years later, around age 10, 11, or 12, I was taken to a doctor and I was diagnosed with ADHD. And so now I have a doctor who my parents look up to, whose opinion of me, my parents are going to accept, telling me that there's something else about me that is not accepted by the world. There's something else about me that, that's broken. Um, and then he said, you know, as long as, didn't say this exactly, but what I heard was, don't worry because we're gonna give you a pill. And as long as you take this pill, it's gonna hide what the world doesn't want from you. Mm-hmm. And from that moment on, it had a really, in, a, a very profound impact on my, the way that I viewed myself and, and the world around me. That if I saw something about myself that I didn't like, or if I noticed something about myself that other people didn't agree with, or didn't accept, or didn't validate in a positive way, I could find a substance to fix it. That's how this worked. As a young kid being told this by so many different influences that were authoritative, that when there's something about you that doesn't work, there's something about you that others don't like, don't worry, fix it. There's a, there's a substance you can use to fix it. And we moved to Austin, Texas, right before I started high school. So I didn't really know anybody, didn't have any friends. And I, start, I went to high school at a very, very well-known football high school where Drew Brees played and... And so it's very clickish, and, and there's the popular kids, and there's these kids, and then there was the kid who knew no one. And I remember my freshman year of high school, I got invited to a party. And my prescription for Ritalin had become Adderall at this point because Adderall had sort of just come out, and Adderall is simply another stimulant medication used to treat ADHD. And I got a call from, one, from someone saying, hey, Adam, we want you to come to the party and bring your Adderall. Hmm. And... and here I am thinking, why in the world would I want to bring my Adderall? I didn't know it was a recreational drug. And, you know, they told me, hey, you know, if you bring it, you can, you know, if you take extra, you have all this energy, it's lots of fun, like everyone's going to love that you're there. Just bring it. And, of course, here is an answer to a problem that I had in my life of wanting to be someone that other people wanted around, that had something of value to offer other people, that was a point of connection that would allow me to become a part of a world that I was not a part of, which was a friend's group. And I'm going to tell you the minute that I used Adderall as a recreational drug, I was hooked and I wasn't hooked to the drug. I was hooked to what it did for me. It seemed to magically fix every single problem that I had with myself and the way the world viewed me. Mm -hmm. Because at this point I was a little bit overweight and Adderall is amphetamine. That's what the stuff is. Mm-hmm. If I were to go to, this, to a pharmacy right now and ask to see a bottle of generic brand Adderall, it says amphetamine salt. The stuff is medically pure amphetamine. That's what it is. That's why it works so well. So when I was on a lot of Adderall, I didn't have any hunger drive. So weight's going to be a pro- not a problem for me. I can lose weight easily doing Adderall. At the same time, my dad and I were having troubles with our relationship because my work ethic or lack thereof was a constant point of contention for him. 
But if I take extra Adderall, that's not a problem. I can study, I can focus on anything. I was also immediately confident. I felt superhuman and I was able to talk to anybody without concern. And whatever they were talking about was immediately interesting to me. So I was able to make friends. I was able to lose weight. My dad and I's relationship was getting better. I had boundless energy and I felt amazing about myself. It made me feel amazing. So why in the world would I ever want to stop doing what was magically fixing every single thing that I thought was wrong with me? And if a little bit extra made me more of the person I was supposed to be, then more would have to do it even more, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. more that's, is better. Logical, right? More is better. And, and it worked. It worked so well for me in high school. I lost the weight. I made friends. I had girlfriends. I went to parties. Uh, I got a scholarship to the college that I wanted to go to. Everything was amazing because of the Adderall. That's how I saw it. Adderall was fixing every single thing that made life painful. And so when I went off to college, Adderall came with me, of course. And that's when things took a turn because I had been abusing it all the way through high school. And at some point, it stopped being enough. More was never enough. And that, that need for more became the most overwhelming concern in my life. I began to care less about what my classes were, what was going on outside of school, what my friends were up to, what my family was up to. Th these things became less and less important in my life as the other concerns, which were how much do I have? How much Adderall do I have? How long will it last? Where will I get more? How much will it cost? Where will I get the money to pay for it? These became every single thing that I thought about all day long in a reoccurring cycle that was bordering on madness. Mm. And to the point to where the only thing I could think about was where, what was going on with my Adderall. And so I told my parents that I was dropping out of college to go work in the industry that I was studying, which was film. And it's true, I did get myself a job so that I could come back to Austin and start to, to work. I was like, I'm gonna take a year off. I'm gonna go you know, work in the industry. And while that's true that I set that up for myself, that's not why I was coming home. I was coming home because in Austin, I knew the, the people I could buy Adderall from, hmm. and I knew doctors that I could scam. And I immediately started to engage in criminal activity where I was buying and dealing and selling and scamming and robbing and all this horrible stuff on the street, while at the same time, doctor shopping, which is a felony. It's where you have multiple doctors prescribing the same medications without them knowing about each other. I was forging prescriptions, which is another felony. And... I was becoming so increasingly isolated and depressed. I lost the job within six months and I basically shut myself away. Um, and I was running through Adderall very, very quickly. And there would be a week, week and a half where I didn't have any. And life sober was really difficult. And I found out that fast food was an amazing way to, uh, to soothe that experience of pain that I, was, that I was having when I was show up in life as my authentic self. And when I say that I had a struggle with fast food, I'll tell you what I mean. I would get up every single day and I'd go to a place called Torchy's Tacos. You've probably heard of it. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so I would get three to five of their potato, egg, and cheese breakfast tacos. I would go straight to Whataburger and get the extra large honey barbecue chicken strip sandwich meal. Uh, then I would go to McDonald's and get two supersized double quarter pounder meals because one was not enough. For dinner, I'd eat an extra large pizza from Papa John's with beef on top, side of the chicken strips with a honey mustard dipping sauce. 
Then at three in the morning, go back to Whataburger for three of their breakfast on a bun sandwiches with sausage, egg, and cheese. Uh, during the course of the day, I would drink 15 to 20 sodas. And when I say that I was struggling with substance abuse, the average prescription for Adderall is 10 milligrams a day. I was doing 450 milligrams in a 24-hour period. I would do it for six days straight where I wouldn't sleep. I wouldn't eat during those six days. The only thing I would consume is Adderall. Um, by the morning of day five or the evening of day four, I would start to experience the symptoms of drug-induced psychosis where I would be hallucinating. I would hear things that weren't happening. I would see things that weren't happening. I would enter these experiences of uh, something called micro naps where you fall asleep really quickly. You have a short dream and then you wake up immediately. And then I would be very disoriented. I wouldn't know where I was, what had just happened. Was it real? Was it not? I would have these really weird experiences where I'd be laying down and I'd fall asleep and I'd feel myself get up and walk around the room and stumble into things. And it would be very hard because I would try to be moving my body, but I couldn't. It was, it was just the most un, uncomfortable experience I've ever had. And uh, I remember that I would I had developed these obsessive compulsive tics, one of which was I couldn't stand to feel the hair touch my ears. And there was one night where I was up all night as usual. And the, that OCD tick had become so overwhelming that I was brushing my hair forward and back all night long. And when I went to go to the bathroom in the morning, all, I brushed all the hair off the side of my head. Hmm. It was completely bald. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is it this really, I started to gain weight, obviously, as a result of the fast food. And I think I was about 300 plus pounds at this point. And it was at this really really difficult time in my life that my, my dad came to me. And, and at this point, I, I avoided my family at all costs. The only time I would see them is to either get money or things from them or to blame them and shame them for every single thing that was wrong in my life. Um, my dad came to me and he said, you know, my dad's been a part of Whole Foods Market since the founding. And he says to me, Adam, you know, Whole Foods Market is just partnered with this man named Rip Esselstyn. And Rip Esselstyn is the, the creator of the Engine 2 Diet. And we are offering uh, to our employees the opportunity to attend a seven-day retreat to learn the principles of a plant-based diet, to reverse disease and get their health back. And there's a few spots uh, open and enrollment has closed and I can get you a spot where you please go. And I remember I actually went and met with Rip in his office at the headquarters and we talked and I just like... I, I BS'd him everything I needed to say for him to think that I really wanted to go. But I'm going to tell you the only reason I wanted to go was because if I knew that if I told my dad yes, he'd keep giving me money. Hmm. That's why I wanted to go. I did not care who Rip Esselstyn was. I sure didn't want to hear what he had to say. I had no interest in listening to one darn thing anybody was telling me there. And so I went. I was high when I showed up. I had drugs on me. Um, my, I, I had a private room because I didn't want to be around anybody and I know no one wanted to be around me. I was very diaphoretic. So my face was always flush red. I would sweat through two shirts a day. And I remember that I had no intention of going to the, to the lectures, but I went and I listened to everything that was being said. I sat in the very back up against the wall and I watched this family and here I am like here I, I, I was immediately judging them as arrogant and like trying to find flaws in them so that I could dis- disregard everything that they were teaching me. But I heard the message from Dr. Esselstyn, from Rip, from Dr. Michael Clapper, 
from Doug Lyle, from Jeff Novick, from all these people. And they're all saying, if I were to adopt a diet based around plants, entirely plants, that I could regain my health. And it spoke to a core value in me uh, and my connection to nature and the natural world. Um, it goes back all the way to when I was born. So when I was finally able to leave the hospital, my grandmother took me outside and, and she placed my hand on a tree. And she was introducing me to nature and saying that this is your home. And as long as you love nature, you're never lost. Wow. And um, so here I am learning that I can not only recover my health, but I can finally be in alignment with a core value of mine that I had been butting up against my entire life, which is that I love animals. I love nature. I eat them. And I eat them because I was selfish and, you know, I was very aware of what I was doing. I, you know, I knew that there were vegans. I knew that there were vegetarians in the world. I knew it was possible, but it wasn't convenient for me. And so I, 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 I made up this, you know, bullshit morality thing that, oh, well, I eat, you know, grass fed and all that stuff. Um, and in fact, the last night of the, uh, of the immersion, there was a speaker named Dick Beardsley. And Dick Beardsley, he's one of the greatest marathoners of all time. He ran an amazing race against a, uh, a runner named Alberto Salazar in the Chicago Marathon. And it, there's, a, there's actually a really great book about it, I believe. But what he talked about wasn't his running career. He talked about afterwards when he was working on his family farm and he got caught up in machinery and he nearly died. And he, got, uh, he became very dependent on painkillers. And that dependency got way out of hand. And I listened to him talk about himself and his substance abuse and how he treated people and how he moved through the world. And I was like, wow, this guy's talking about me. And I'm, for the first time, saw somebody that I knew that if I went up to this person and said, I need help, I'm scared, I don't know what I'm doing, I can't stop using, I can't stop eating this food. And no, I'm not gonna be judged for it because this guy has gone through my experience. He's not a superhuman. I saw Rip as like this celebrity superhuman. How could he ever relate to my experience with this guy? And I wish I could tell you that I walked up to him and, and, and asked him what to do. And then that very next day, you know, the immersion saved my life, but that's just not my story. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about that, that first immersion? What did you learn in that immersion program about food addiction itself? Doug Lyle was there, I believe he said. Yeah, Doug was there. And I, you know, I didn't really listen to what he had to say. Uh, I, I remember that he was giving a talk about the Pleasure Tribe and I heard a little spatterings about it, but I didn't really listen. It would come back later. Because at this point, you didn't understand why the heck you were there in the first place. I mean, you were dealing with a, you know, a drug addiction in a sense. And what did food have to do with any of it, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was, you know, I was also very dependent on fast food. And I was just, I was just so unhealthy. You know, my dad was offering me the opportunity to, to show me that there's so much that's in my control. And that if I were to, to incorporate one positive change and see uh, the results of it, then maybe I'd want to do more. Mm -hmm. um, but I left the immersion. You know what? I was just not ready. So did you approach uh, Dick Beersley or not? No. Oh, okay. Okay. I, right. I tried so hard. Okay. I, you know what? It comes down to this. I was not ready to give up what was allowing me uh, to escape a life that was too painful a place to be. It's like when a person is not quite ready yet. Please continue. <laughs> a year later, I, I came home from shopping. I had to shop at a place called Casual Mail XL because I had a 50 inch waist. And, um, uh, when I was outside, I really went outside because I looked like a hoarder. Um, when I went outside, I would look at people and I would notice them stare at me, right? And it's, it's kind of a painful experience to have people pay attention to you and ignore you at the same time. Mm. And I would imagine that, that they were thinking really awful things about me. I don't know what they were thinking. They probably didn't notice me at all. Um, 
And when I would come home, I would go into the bathroom and I'd take off my shirt and I'd stand in front of the mirror. And I would say to myself everything that I imagined everyone else was saying to me. And as I would say these things, I would start to beat myself as hard as I could. I would punch myself in the stomach as hard as I could over and over and over again. Because my goal was that if I could just hate myself enough, and if I could hate my life enough, then maybe I would finally want to change. And the only thing that would happen was I would end up collapsed on the floor, swollen red, crying, because it didn't matter how hard I hit myself, and it sure didn't matter how much I hated myself. It was never enough for me to want to do anything about my life. It just made me want to use more. Mm. And I had always felt like I was not enough, right? And I had gotten to a point to where living hurt in every sense of the word. And everything that I hated about myself, everything that I hated about my life, at that moment was the worst it had ever been. And I was certain that tomorrow it would be worse. And I just kept thinking, you know, how bad does it have to get for me to want to change? Because I just didn't want to. And how much worse can I actually tolerate? You know, I'd always accepted that I wasn't enough, but now the uh, enormous amount of drugs I was doing was also not enough. So I'm not enough. The drugs aren't enough. I don't want to change. I just couldn't take it anymore. And, you know, it wasn't like a plan. Um, but it was like two in the morning and, uh, I had a conversation with my twin brother a few weeks before that, where I had told him, you know, that he's the most important person in the world to me. And that, you know, no matter what, um, I would never, uh, commit suicide because I don't want to live my life without him. And I wouldn't want him to live his life without me, but I just don't, I don't know what happened. I just couldn't take it anymore. And I grabbed a handful of pills and I, and I swallowed them all. And um, I can remember, I'd been on the verge of overdose several times where it was like, you, you feel like you're gonna vomit, your heart starts pounding like crazy, and I have to drop to the floor and put ice packs on me and cool myself down. It's something I've done a few times. Um, but this was different. And I tried to stand up and my entire right side cramped. And I noticed myself feeling very lightheaded and start to like lean forward and everything's going black. And there's this moment of recognition where I had a very clear understanding that that's it. That this is the last thing I'm gonna see and I'm in a dark, order-like apartment, completely alone, surrounded by nobody. Not because they didn't wanna be there for me, but because I did everything in my power to push everyone away. And so disconnected from everything that's ever been meaningful in my life. And I passed out, I fell forward, landed in a pile of garbage, and about, I don't know, three, four hours later, I woke up in a puddle of vomit. Mm. And I had this unbelievable experience where I felt immense relief. And I found that confusing at first because I thought my goal was to end my life. And here I am so relieved that I had failed and it helped me to recognize that that wasn't an attempt to end my life. That was an attempt to end my pain because I had spent so much of my life with this profound willingness to not want to understand suffering, see it as a flaw of my humanness rather than a part of human experience. Mm -hmm. And I also knew that what had just happened 
was that I had just failed at allowing my parents to spend every day of the rest of their lives asking themselves why their son needed to eat and drug himself to death. And I was so grateful for that. I was so grateful that my brother, I was so grateful that my brother didn't have to bury me. Um, and I picked up the phone and I called my parents and I asked for help. And uh, two weeks later, I checked into rehab and I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, erectile dysfunction, bipolar disorder, suicidal depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, and attention wow. deficit disorder. And they put me on a cabinet's worth of medication for life. <laughs> and uh, I felt broken in ways I hadn't before. The whole experience of checking into rehab was very dehumanizing. It made me feel like a criminal. Um, and uh, I tried to leave. And I got on the phone with my dad and I said, you know, I can't do it anymore. I, you know, I thought all I had to do was get off the drugs. Now I have diabetes and heart disease and I have all these psychological conditions that I don't understand. And my dad's conversation with me has forever changed the way that I look at the world. He said, Adam, I don't know what's going on with you. I, I'm not a doctor, but let's just say for the sake of argument that you do have these medical conditions. Well, you also know that a lot of this is reversible and you know how to reverse it. And I'm going to tell you, if there are things about your life that you don't like, and you can do something about it, then you don't have a problem. And if there are things about your life that you don't like and there's nothing you can do about it, it's not a problem. It's just the way things are. And maybe you and I and your, your, your therapy team can help you to look at these things in a different way so they're not so overwhelming. And he gave me, the, he gave me, he gave me permission to believe and know that because I was the problem, I'm the solution. Mm -hmm. That I had to wait for nothing or no one to start changing my life and make it better. And so when I left rehab and moved into sober living, I adopted a plant-based diet. It's so funny because when I got there, the food was absolute garbage. And I was like, you know, this is not gonna work. I wanna adopt a plant-based diet to reverse this disease because the psychological stuff I just can't understand. This is trackable, this is measurable, I wanna do this. And so I walked up to the house manager whose last name was literally Hamburger <laughs> and asked him to get me plant-based options. And he did. It was a really short list because at the time, the only greens I ate was the occasional piece of lettuce they didn't take off my burger at McDonald's. And I would get up every morning, I would go to the pantry and I would open it up and I'd see two choices staring me in the face. One is Fruity Pebbles. And that's, that was my jam growing up. Fruity Pebbles was life. <laughs> and the other was the oatmeal that I asked for. Mm -hmm. And I'd look at these two choices and I'd get really angry. I would get angry at myself and I would get angry at the universe because why, knowing that choosing Fruity Pebbles is going to make my diseases worse, it's going to make me feel worse, it's going to, it's going to in, increase the negative things that are going on in my life. I also know that the oatmeal is going to do the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. It's going to increase the abundance of good things that could come into my life. It's going to help me not reverse disease, but increase my health. That's why I wanted to look at it. So why in the world, knowing these, ten, these two things, why would I want to choose what I know was wrong? Mm -hmm. What in the world? Why could this not simply be a matter of intellect and will? Why mm -hmm. could I not know what to do, want to do it, and that's it? And then I remembered, like you were mentioning earlier, I remembered that there was a talk about that at the immersion from Doug Lyle. So I just looked him up online, Doug Lyle, talk. Boom, TED Talk pops up, the pleasure trap. Mm -hmm. And I watched this TED Talk and I had such a surreal experience. 
where all of a sudden a lot of shame around food was lifted from me mm. because I learned that there actually is a biological mechanism that compels us to, that it, it compels us to want to do any behavior that creates a greater dopamine response because that dopamine response, then we all know that dopamine is the, the chemical that gives us the feeling of pleasure and but what I didn't know is that pleasure is our body's way of letting us know that we've done something biologically beneficial. So I now understood that when I did 120 milligrams of Adderall or when I ate two McDonald's cheeseburgers, my body was responding by going, bravo. <laughs> Whatever that was is irrelevant because that dopamine response means it's the best thing you've ever done for yourself. If you ever have the opportunity to do it again, we are going to give you such an amazing sense of compulsion to complete that behavior because we believe, our, your body believes, it's going to increase your statistical likelihood of gene survival. And so from a very, very you know, old part of my brain, an old part of my body, the, the evolutionary psychology of me is going to say, that's right. I don't know why, but it's right. Do it. So when I was sitting there with these two options, knowing that Fruity Pebbles was wrong, but wanting to do it wasn't because there was anything wrong with me. Mm -hmm. It was because my body was doing exactly what it was supposed to do, given mm -hmm. the way that I've been living my life. And I also learned that if I was simply willing to make the healthy choice over and over again, eventually it wouldn't be a chore. And then eventually I would look forward to it. This TED talk taught me that, that the invariable truth to the beginning stages of change, and that is a willingness to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm. And in order to do that, I needed to know why I was gonna to wanna to do that, right? So people talk about their why, you know? And from the outside looking in, someone could say, oh, well, this is easy. His, his why is, is, is that he's obese, he has heart disease, he has you know, diabetes, he's got erectile dysfunction, and he nearly killed himself from drug, drug abuse. That's why he wants to do this. And while those things were occurring, that's not my motivation. I call absolute BS on the uh, ability for humans to hate their way out of a bad situation. Mm -hmm. I was done trying to hate myself enough to move into a positive space. I had diabetes, heart disease, and erectile dysfunction, and I didn't want them. This is true. Uh, I was uh, suffering from substance abuse to the point to where I wanted to kill myself. This is true, right? I wanted to end my pain through attempting suicide. And I didn't want to die. Why not? What was it about my life and myself that I loved enough that in spite of all this pain, in spite of all this discomfort, I was willing to get up every single day and do it one more time. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to hate my way out of a bad situation. I wanted to love myself into a positive one. And I think that that's the way human beings operate. Love is an amazing catalyst for long-term change. Fear can get you to recognize what it is about your life that's so meaningful that's being threatened. That's what fear teaches us. When we're afraid, it's like, oh, what is it about my life that's meaningful that this is threatening to take from me? That's what the diabetes and the heart disease taught me, is to view these meaningful bonds that make life worth living and to connect to them again and find behaviors that allow me to reconnect to those meaningful bonds that I had disconnected from. And so when I got up every single day and I prepared a meal on a plate that was about health and wellness, that was about becoming a healthier version of myself than I, today than I was the day before, I told myself, this is an act of self-love. This is an act of self-care. You are worthy of this now, not when you reverse the disease. Mm -hmm. And 
in three months, my blood glucose, so I had an A1C of 12 when I was diagnosed. So my fasting blood glucose was around 390. Within three wow. months, and I was on, I was on the 2,000 milligrams of metformin, and within three months, I was going hypoglycemic all the time. And so I just stopped taking the medication without talking to my doctor, which I don't recommend anybody doing. <laughs> but being hypoglycemic is not a fun experience. And I went to go see my endocrinologist at month four. And uh, so this would have been month, the five months after being diagnosed because I was diagnosed in rehab. And um, four months in sober living, I'm seeing my endocrinologist and he comes in. we had done blood work, uh, brings out his chart, he opens it up and he says, you know, according to your new blood work, you are no longer diabetic and you don't need to take your medication anymore. And I said, well, first of all, I haven't been taking my medication for over 30 days. <laughs> and according to, your med- according to these new blood works, this also means I no longer need your services. <laughs> and I stood up and I shook his hand and I walked out feeling something that I hadn't felt in a long time, which was self-worth. Mm-hmm. And that self-worth made me feel like I was worth saving. That it was the most unbelievable lesson that I have ever learned because what it taught me was that I have always been everything I've ever needed to be, to own my life, my self-love, to own my health, that this thing that I had been doing was not a practice in becoming somebody new. Mm-hmm. It was a practice in remembering that I've always been enough. I've always been worthy and I've always had everything I've ever needed to show up as my best self. That's what I think, trend, that's what I think recovery is about. I don't think recovery is like becoming the sober you. I think recovery is a practice in remembering who you were before the world got its hands on you. So you finally reached a place where you accepted yourself. Did you ever get to the root of the cause? What caused that thought in your mind that you were not enough? It was a, it was a series of things. You know, it was, it was the constant criticism from my parents, which was with the best intentions. You know, my dad lost his father when my dad was 25 years old. His dad died from colon cancer. Um, you know, uh, my grandmother on my dad's side had already survived a heart attack. She already survived cancer. So, you know, my dad was coming from a place of fear of not wanting to lose anyone else that he cared so deeply about. And I just didn't understand his way of showing his love for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when you're that young, how was she supposed to perceive it? And so it was just, it, you know, it was, it was simply a misunderstanding of the world around me and how I fit into it. Or your story early on uh, caught my attention in that uh, uh, we keep the foods around the house that we're also told not to eat too much of or to stay away from. And uh, that can create such uh, 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 incongruous thoughts in your own mind, you know, that how do you, how do you resolve those things? These are my parents who want nothing but love and good things for me. Why would they ever allow me to put something into my body that would be really harmful? It can't be that bad. Or right. they wouldn't give it to me. Why would they have it in the house? Why would they have it in the house? Yeah. They yeah. didn't know better. Yeah. yeah of course yeah. they didn't. And, and I didn't know any better. And I also didn't know. I did not know that it was okay not to know. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, that, and that's the way our society is. It's, it's a societal issue. It's not, just, uh, it's not just your parents. It's not you. It's not us. It's, uh, it's the way our society is, uh, is constructed today. So it was in sober living where you were sort of being fostered. There was a, a, an ideal situation for you to not only be off the Adderall and other things, but also to incorporate plant-based foods. And you had the support of, you said, the, uh, the manager there? Yeah. Yeah. Phil Hamburger was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> were you the only person that had ever requested plant-based foods? 
Yeah, I was the only one there that was doing a, a plant-based thing. It was, and, and you know, it was, you know, there were the comments and stuff, but it was great. Um, but what I loved so much about it is it gave me this ability, this opportunity to become very aware of myself, right? So I would get up every single day, like four, five, six months in, and have urges and temptations and cravings, not just for food, but for substance. And I would get angry and anxious and fearful of those things. And I would see that, those feelings, those, those sensations as failure. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was having a talk with one, one of my therapists, uh, Dr. Wasser, who is just amazing. And he asked me, you know, is it possible that maybe you're succeeding and you're feeling these things because you're human? And I, I had this quiet, calm moment where I asked myself, is it ever going to be possible for me to live a life where I don't feel fear, where I don't feel anxiety, where I don't feel temptations or urges or cravings for anything? Absolutely not. Is it going to be possible for me to live my life where I have those experiences and I'm okay with it? Yes, absolutely. Because I gave myself permission to view the breath of human emotion as simply a, a reasonable response to life. Mm-hmm. That like we're talking, you were talking about earlier, that our society conditions us to believe that one half of the breath of human emotion, the positive emotions, are worthy of experiencing without judgment because that's an indication that you're doing things right. And the other half, the negative emotions, you have to judge yourself for. You have to figure out what you did wrong, why you're feeling them because they're an indication of failure. And the problem with that is that that is not what emotions are. They are not happening to us. They're happening for us. They are a meaningful signal that allows us to recognize the way that we're showing up for ourselves and how we're moving through the world. And in my inability to willingly allow myself to experience the entire breadth of human emotion, I was missing out on some of what is best about being alive. And I was going to allow myself to learn to be able to do that, to feel fear and say, I love you to feel anxiety and say, I love you as much as I love excitement and joy. Mm -hmm. And that this is not an indication of failure. This is a reasonable response to life as a human. And that was really, and it's something I still work on. Like I'm, I'm, I'm working on myself constantly. It's a constant, you know, practice, but that was huge Mm -hmm. because that allowed me to become the conscious observer of what I experience emotionally rather than the unwilling participant. And being an unwilling participant of emotions in recovery is a really dangerous thing. It's a reactive thing. Exactly. You will react rather than respond. And you will, have, you will feel like you have to react immediately. You can't sit in it. You can't let it be and let it go and say, what was that about? Where did that come from? And even if you can't figure it out in the moment, you go, okay, well, when it comes up again, maybe I'll observe it and, and know a little bit more. But right now I'm going to go and do what I, what I need to do, what creates positive change for me. Mm-hmm. You know, within 10 months, I'd lost 100 pounds. Within a year, I was off of every single medication I was prescribing wow. rehab. So all the psych meds, all the chronic disease medications. What were your doctors saying at that time? Uh, well, you know what? I, at month six, I started working with my psychiatrist. And I said, you know, I just don't think I'm the same. I just don't think I'm showing up the same way today as I was six months ago when I was diagnosed with this stuff. And my doctor was like, I completely agree. And I said, can we, can we start to reduce my medication? And they, they said, absolutely. I wanted to go off of, it, off of it immediately. And they were very, very great at saying, listen, antidepressants, you don't just stop immediately. But we are going to titrate you off of them over the course of the next six months. 
because it's very important that you slowly titrate yourself off of anxiety medications, sure. uh, you know, mood stabilizers, antidepressants. When you're on that much, if I were to just stop, it would not, it wouldn't probably wouldn't have gone as well. So with, over the course of the next six months, I got off of everything. And um, it was an amazing experience. And, uh, you know, I am, you know, I, I recognize that I, I had amazing resourcefulness and self-awareness to create this opportunity for myself, but I've never done any of it alone. You know, I have, I had an amazing support team. I have an amazing family. Um, and, uh, you know, people like Rip who gave me this gift of, of being confident in my knowing mm -hmm. that the choices I was making in regards to food were going to create health in a way that I've never had before. So that I could say, you know what, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm sure of this. And it's not just physical health, but mental health. Absolutely. Right. I wasn't aware of that at the time, but, you know, I, I look back at, my experience going through recovery. And I was in sober living for 10 months and I went through sober living with a lot of people. And I watched the people that I went through sober living with eating whatever they wanted, whatever they wanted and their medications going up either in, in, in uh, dosage or in number of medications. And I noticed people's weight going up and I'm sitting here like, well, what's the X factor that allowed me to not be on more medication, but get off all of it and lose a hundred pounds. Because I went to the gym with everybody else. I went to the same, uh, you know, intensive outpatient therapy program with everybody else. Mm -hmm. My food environment was completely different. Mm -hmm. And it had a profound impact on my ability to not only recover my physical health, but to be to gain incredible awareness of how I move through the world. Mm -hmm. Because it taught me that, you know, all right, so let's say that even if chronic disease and mental health issues were 80% of your genetics, right? The 20% is still the one that's worth focusing on because that's the one that we have control over. Luckily, 90% right. environment and 10% genetics. Luckily, I, I get to have so much control of how I show up through to, uh, in the world by creating an environment where regardless of how I'm feeling, I can make daily positive change. And that's unfortunately what so many people don't understand is how much control they actually do have. Right. Because it, it takes an, uh, a willingness to say, shoot, it kind of is my fault. Yeah. Not in a bad yeah. way, though. Many people don't want to accept responsibility for their own health. So at what point did you return to another immersion program? So um, I was really fortunate to, in 2015 to, uh, I went back to Austin to, uh, to see my, um, see my parents and, um, my dad who's, uh, works at the global headquarters. I was sitting in the lobby waiting to go up to see him and Rip comes walking through. I hadn't seen him. Oh, five years later. Five years, right? Oh my goodness. Uh, he walks by and I go, Hey Rip. And he just like points like this. I can tell he has no idea who I am. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, like he was just like, Hey, there's somebody who knows my name. And, uh, <laughs> and so I said, Rip, it's Adam Sud. And he just like his jaw just like hit the floor. And he was like, what are you doing here? He's like, I was like, I'm coming to see my dad. He goes, no, 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 come up to my office. And so he brings me up, we go up and we talk and, you know, I took it as an opportunity to make amends to him. You know, I took it as an opportunity to tell him, you know, that when I was at his immersion, I was high all the time that I brought drugs and it has an opportunity to apologize for not knowing the gift that he was offering people and threatening the opportunity that he would ever be able to do that again. Cause I mean, imagine if I OD'd and died yeah. while I was there, that'd have been yeah. it. That'd have been, they would have been over. Um, and 
I expected, I didn't know what to expect. I, you know, I had no intention of being a public speaker or anything like that. And, and so he turns to the first thing he says, he goes, I'm so glad you told me that, but listen, will you come to my next retreat and tell that exact same story? Wow. And I was like, sure. Okay. And I'd never given a presentation. I talked at AA meetings and stuff. Um, but I'd never really given, like told my story. And so I went and I got up and I shared the exact same story I'm sharing with you guys right now. And it went so well. Like people came up and hugged me and were crying. And I was just like, I was, I was really taken back. I had no idea that people were actually going to care what I had to say. Mm-hmm. And it became clear to me that not only what I had to say, but maybe how I say it has value that there is something that I can offer the world in sharing my story and how I share it. And it was really emotional for me. Like I, I was a basket case before I went up. Like I was all sweaty and nervous and Rip gave me an extra shirt to put on before I went up. And <laughs> afterwards, like I talked to some people and I went for a long run and I came back and Rip, you know, I was only supposed to be there two days. And he said, you know, listen, Adam, you know, I know you're supposed to fly out today, but you're going to stay the whole time. Once you're here the whole time, and then he invited me to be a part of their program for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was quite amazing. And uh, yeah. yeah, Rip's been just the most incredible mentor. Uh, you know, and I've heard your story before, uh, and yet hearing you tell it again uh, and speaking to you, it gives me, you, you're, you're giving me perspectives. I'm a healthcare worker. I've been doing this for uh, three decades, and uh, there's certain things that you're saying that everybody can grasp a piece of. Exactly. And that's why when I heard your story, I found so much value in it because I said, um, just like Dr. Riz is saying, I've never dealt with um, drug addiction or food addiction. And as a matter of fact, that's why I want to get to know you more because of your experience in food addiction. But I have dealt with being in a dark place in my yeah, life. We all have these feelings. Yeah. Yes. Being in a dark place of feeling helpless, feeling like no one can identify, no one can pull you out of it. And so to hear your story, you have the courage to share it. So a lot of us can sort of identify with that and say, gosh, yes, you know, I've been there. And seeing you pull through all of that makes us, the rest of us that have been in a dark place, in a dark place, feel like, yes, we can do it as well. And it's all about allowing yourself to be vulnerable, isn't it? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. You know, it's, I look at my recovery, right? And there's some things that I've learned, right? One, and the first most important thing is that I'm not now, nor have I ever been broken, right? I've always been everything I've ever needed to be to own my health and well-being. It's very easy. You guys want to know why I ever weighed 350 pounds, ever had type 2 diabetes and heart disease, erectile dysfunction, uh, and then was abusing substances to the point to where, uh, and, my, and, 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 and hating myself to the point where I wanted to end my life by ending my pain or ending my pain by ending my life. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. When you consume five to 10,000 calories of fast food on a regular basis, consume 450 milligrams in a 24 hour period consistently, and ignore your feelings to the point where you do not understand yourself and how you fit in the world. I've never, there's never been anything wrong with me. That is the appropriate response to that way of living. The reason why I've been able to reverse those things is because I decided that I was going to start doing the exact opposite. I was going to say that in this moment, I am worthy of this life. I'm worthy of all the love that I want to feel. I'm worthy of showing up for myself exactly as I need to in order to move through this life with positivity. And I'm going to show that and demonstrate that to myself by choosing foods that create health. 
by accepting behaviors that don't include drugs. So not abstaining from drug use, but accepting that I'm going to get up and I'm going to choose a life where this is this, this, this not a part of it anymore. And I'm gonna move my body with purpose as an act of self-love. And I'm not going to focus on the results of reversing disease. I'm going to fall in love with the behaviors that allow me to show up best for myself. Mm. Because if I do that, then I will live this way for the rest of my life. I think of it like training for a marathon. If all I want to do is run a marathon and I train and run a marathon, I may never run again. But if I get up every single day and fall in love with the act of running, I'm going to run for the rest of my life. And a marathon may not even be necessary at that point because running mm -hmm. has become something greater. Mm -hmm. The same thing with this lifestyle. This wasn't about reversing disease. This was about falling in love with myself, how I move through the world, and falling in love with behaviors that demonstrate that to me. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness meditation, purposeful movement, healing plant foods, and then going to bed and waking up every single day with gratitude. If I do those things and fall in love with them, the rest of my life is going to take care of itself. And sobriety is a, is a side effect of all of it. You know, human beings have this amazing and profound need to bond. We'll bond with purpose. We'll bond with people. We'll bond with the environment around us. And most importantly, we'll bond with ourselves. And when those meaningful bonds are severed by anything, we'll bond with whatever it is that gives us pleasure to escape knowing that we're in a painful state of disconnection. And that's what addiction is. That's what anxiety and depression are. They are signals from our body saying, this is a, what if depression, I love what Johan Hari says, what if depression is a form of grief for your life not being lived as it should? Mm -hmm. yeah. What if it's a normal response to an abnormal way of living? What if it has nothing to do with pathology? And in fact, the scientific evidence and the epidemiological studies point more towards what he's saying. Mm -hmm. And it has mostly to do with disconnecting from truly meaningful bonds that make us feel connected as humans. How we choose to escape it, whether through uh, sex, whether through food, whether through, through drugs, is a result of needing to escape that pain. Mm -hmm. And so we treat addiction in this country from a dependency model. Oh, well, he's addicted to Adderall and, and cocaine and amphetamines. So we're going to give him 37 days where he can be no longer chemically dependent upon it, except that he has a problem and call that success. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge flaw in that because they are missing the underlying cause, which is the human aspect of it. That what is really happening is that this person is so desperately disconnected from what is meaningful about being alive that the drugs are now necessary. Yeah, so like we're, like we're giving drugs for depression rather than trying to get at the root causes, why, why are they having it? So yeah. let's talk about the work that you've done in immersion programs, because you've done more than I actually knew. So you, you started with Rip Esselstyn, right? Yeah, I started with Rip, and, um, and then I joined uh, Whole Foods Market um, as a speaker for all of their immersion programs. So um, I've been speaking for, uh, at the Scott Stoll Immersion uh, for two years, um, for Dr. John McDougall's program for two years, for Dr. Furman for two years, and RIP for five years now, five or six. Um, and it's been, it's been amazing. It's been really great to be a part of a program that helped me gain the knowledge that I needed to own my health and my physical health and to see you know, people go through that. Well, I imagine this adds an uh, uh, amazing new dimension to their programs that they didn't have in the past. Uh, and gives uh, it's a it's a wonderful service for the people that you're trying to help. 
uh, in the immersion program. It's, it's not just about, hey, let's teach you how to eat plant foods, but there's another, there's another aspect to this entirely. And that's what I love to do. I love to talk about the feels, you know, like all, I'm all about the feels, you know, that's one of the reasons why Tara Kemp are best friends. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we met at plant stock in 2016. And like the day we met, I was like, yep, she's my best friend for life. <laughs> and I know her because of mastering diabetes, you know, she's good friends with Robbie and that's, and it's funny because I met Robbie before I met Tara and didn't know that they were close friends. And I was like, yeah, I'm friends with Robbie. She's like, oh, Robbie's my best friend. And so like all of a sudden, like this friend group just like came together. I'd like to hear a little bit more about something that I know, I know you're now uh, involved in some research. I was living in Nepal in 2013. Um, a year after I got sober, I decided that I didn't want to go back into the industry that I've been working in, which was film and entertainment. And I also didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And so I said, I was going to give myself the opportunity to wake up every single day and be completely selfless and hopefully learn more about myself. And so I went and lived in an orphanage in Nepal. I was working with orphans. And, you know, here are these kids who are either orphaned because they don't have parents or they were at this orphanage because they have parents, but it's not safe for them to live at home, domestic abuse, drug problems, whatever it is. These kids have nothing, right? And I showed up. And they just have the most immense gratitude and joy in their lives just because you're there and they're there and they're alive. And I learned so much from them um, about minimalism and the, the, the simple joys in life. I mean, these, these kids are never going to have the opportunities that you and I have. And yet they're probably happier today than I am most of the time <laughs> because when they have what they need, it's everything they want. And um, I decided that I was, this is really cheesy, but I, it is what it is. I went and did a yoga class on the lake in Nepal uh, with a yogi. And he asked me to do something that I'd never allowed myself to do, which was to try to see five years down the road. And I, I gave myself permission to do it. And I had this really profound experience of seeing that I was going to use nutrition to be of service to people that haven't been offered this opportunity, which was the experience that I've had, which was uh, substance abuse recovery. And I called my dad and said, uh, I'm quitting the industry and this is what I'm going to do. He goes, well, you better have a plan. <laughs> and I was like, I'm working on it. And I came back and I started to, I knew that at the time I even wrote in my journal that I want to investigate the Im- impact of nutrition on substance abuse and mental health recovery, but I'm not ready to do it yet. And I spent the next, three, four years gaining the knowledge, studying what I needed to learn, and also meeting the people and making relationships with people that I knew would benefit my life and benefit my ability to bring this knowledge to the world. And so it wasn't last year, but in 2018, the end of 2018, I was like, yeah, it's time for me to do this. And so I reached out to Tara because she's the only person that I know that has the same exact view on self-love and recovery that I do. And I knew that she had just started her PhD study at NAU. And I said, listen, Tara, I have recently finally, and this took me a while. I found a treatment center that was willing to allow the study to happen on their population. Wow. And I called Tara. I was like, look, I got a treatment center that's willing to do this. And I, I want you to be involved. And she says, well, I don't know, I just started my PhD study. Typically, first-year PhD students don't get to do their own research. They assist their their 
advisors on their own research. She was part of the Nutritarian Women Health Study. And she goes, well, let me talk to Jay. Let me see Jay Sutliff at NAU. Let me see what he's interested in. She calls me back in like, I don't know, like 24 hours or less. Like, oh, they want to do it. They're so, they so want to do it. And Tara was just going to be a co-investigator. Jay Sutliff was the lead investigator. So we had a meeting in Arizona when I was out with Rip and Engine 2 doing one of our retreats in Sedona. They drove down from Flagstaff. We had this great talk where we sort of like talking about what is this going to look like? What are we actually investigating? And it came down to it to where Jay was like, look, Adam, this is what we want. We want to do the study. We want to do it exactly the way you want to do it. And we want you to, to own 100% of the study rights. So you need to start a nonprofit so that your nonprofit can fund the study and own the rights. I was like, sure, I'll do that. I know exactly how to do that. I have no idea what I was doing. So January 1 of 2019, I founded a nonprofit, went through all of the legal processes of getting my 501c3. My 51 c 3 came through in July of 2019. And then we started to work with, I started to work with NAU regularly. What are we investigating? How are we going to investigate it? What are the scales of measurement that we're going to use to validate our claims? All of these things that you go through, because we were like, all right, so we're going to study recovery, but what does that mean? Like, what, what does, how do you define recovery? Yeah, what are your parameters? What are the outcomes that we're actually going to use to define that we've studied recovery? And what we decided upon was resiliency. And there is a, uh, a, a validated scale of measuring resiliency called the Connor Davidson Resiliency Scale. And what it was originally designed for was to measure the effectiveness of PTSD treatment. Right? How effective is it at allowing a person to be in a moment of discomfort, extreme discomfort, and have the resiliency to move through it with a positive response mm. rather than being overwhelmed by the experience of post-traumatic stress? And so we're like, okay, this is it. This is what we want. Because what we're talking about is measuring one's ability to be able to confront those parts of themselves that are no longer serving them and have the resiliency to move through that moment of extreme discomfort with grace and positivity. And so, yes, while we are also measuring depression, anxiety, self-compassion, resiliency is our primary outcome. And I had been consulting with Dean and Aisha Sherzai because I had met them at PlantStock the previous year. And I told them about the study idea and they were blown away. And it was so funny because I asked Dean, I said, Dean, in your work, you know, he's probably the, the, the foremost, both of them are probably the, the leading neuroscientists in the world. In your work, have you ever come across any research showing the positive impact of food on addiction recovery? And he goes, you know, Adam, I'm really sorry to have to tell you this, but there's no evidence showing that there's any benefit <laughs> to diet on addiction recovery. And here's why it's never been studied. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he goes, if you do this, you'll be the first to ever do it, which was so shocking to me because anyone who checks into rehab, everyone who checks into rehab is not only going to be fed three times a day, they're all fed the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's such a control. Why would we not investigate the effect of that in that setting and know whether it's hindering or strengthening one's ability to build a foundation for recovery? It's mind blowing, but I, I got so like enthusiastic about it. Like he, he lit this fire in me. I was like, well, I'm going to do this. And uh, we decided that we knew what we were going to study. We knew how we were going to study it. So it's not, just, it's not just looking at how food impacts those validated scales of emotional health, but it's also a microbiome study. So mm -hmm. we're looking at how changes in the gut microbiome 
and changes mm. in various lipid uh, biomarkers. So we're doing full lipid panel, but we're also looking at high sensitivity C-reactive protein. We're looking at omega-3. We're looking at various vitamin levels that have implications in uh, neurotransmitter formation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're looking at how those changes relate to those validated scales of measuring self-compassion, resiliency, anxiety, depression, mania, and obsessive compulsive drug use. And so this isn't looking at sobriety as an outcome, but how food in your environment influences those mediating factors that create, and that create the ability for one to recover. Mm-hmm. And I think we were at, I don't know, it was maybe May or June, and I was talking with Tara. I was like, you know what? Dean and Aisha have been so great in offering us so much consult. Like, we should just ask them to join the study. I didn't think they'd actually do it because they're, they have so much going on. But I got on a phone call with them, and Dean and Aisha just without, like, I didn't even make it through. They go, yes, we're in. <laughs> we're in. And what was really Im- impressive was Dean said, you know, that they have been involved in research for 20 years, whatever, but they, they consider this the most important research they've ever been involved in. Oh my it's like when they said that Tara and I just looked at each other like, are you kidding me? Um, but I've also had amazing help from other amazing doctors, Dr. Elizabeth Winings, um, who is the medical director for the engine two retreats. And she is a, uh, she has amazing experience with um, uh, psychological health. And she gave us a lot of consult in the beginning. Dr. Clapper was the one who came to me as this has to be a microbiome study. I was like, that's really expensive. He goes, figure it out. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has to be a microbiome study. And we, I did an episode on Plant Proof, the Plant Proof podcast with Simon Hill. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a young microbiome doctor named uh, Dr. Frank Cusimano. Mm-hmm. And he was finishing his, uh, his residency at um, uh, Columbia. And he heard the episode and he reaches out to Tara and I on Instagram. He's like, I'm super fascinated uh, can I talk to you about, you know, if you have any needs for a microbiome specialist? And it's exactly what we hadn't found yet. And so we get on the phone. I was, I was in Costa Rica at the time with Robbie and Cyrus for a mastering diabetes retreat. And I was like, Tara, this is your world. You're the researcher. You know all this stuff. You get on the phone with them and let me know what happens. And she calls me back. And I thought she was crying, but she was laughing. She goes, he's so in. He's so in. And what's amazing is that normally the microbiome sample cost just to sample for each sample is like $70 per sample. At the time we were doing a thousand samples. He he got us down to do 400, but still. Um, And he goes, look, we're going to use the Wang laboratory at Columbia. So uh, I can probably quote you $7 a sample. Mm. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Um, Like everything just fell into place for this. And it's been amazing. And we started the study January, 2020. Mm-hmm. So it's currently running right now. Wonderful. Uh, we have, it's, it's a, when people enter, exit detox and enter the residential setting, the, the actual rehab facility, within the first 24 hours, they are offered the opportunity to be a part of the study. There's a recruitment process. When they watch a video, we have a person who's their point of contact and answers any questions. And they are randomly assigned to either the treatment group or the control group. And everything is done from there. And in doing so, they will be given $50 worth of Whole Foods Market gift cards for every single week that they're in the 10-week intervention. Mm-hmm. So that they, when they're done, they, as they move through sober living, because they're in, in the, the rehab for three weeks, seven weeks in sober living, they have the funds to go to a grocery store and continue living this way. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Is this happening in Arizona or you, you can't disclose the information? In Austin, Texas, okay. at, a treatment center, at a treatment center called Infinite Recovery. Infinite oh. study. That's right. You know, okay. you know, the whole thing about the microbiome, uh, it fascinates me. We have so much bacteria in our, in our gut. I sometimes wonder, 
as to whether we produce more neurotransmitters from those bacteria in our gut, the dopamine and the serotonin, than, our, than in other areas of our body, including our brain. Yeah, so about 90% of our serotonin, of our dopamine and like, half, like 50% of our serotonin or, or vice versa actually stems from gut production. But I was talking to Dr. Cusimano about that and he says actually 10% of that production is actually utilized by the brain. However, what we're actually looking at is that the, the health of your gut reducing the inflammatory response that occurs in the brain, which allows those transmitters to function properly. Hmm. So there's a huge connection between your gut health and your mental health. And I really don't, like, here's one of the things I'm, I'm not a fan of is saying that there's mental health and physical health, mm -hmm. right? That it's not all one body. How can you separate them? Yeah, it's always been about, and calling it mental health was a really smart way for the pharmaceutical industry to create the idea of pathology in mental mm -hmm. health. Mm -hmm. Because what we're actually talking about is emotional health. Mm -hmm. And emotional health is a response of, being able to handle emotional response is directly related to stress, right? And stress on the body is created by a, a diet that is putting your body into a state of being distressed all the time, which your gut health helps relieve. There's so much that goes into it. It's, it's just so fascinating. It's amazing how all interconnected it really is. It's just incredible. Yeah. So we've had people ask us, and, and I think there's limited research on this as well, the association between depression and, and um, diet uh, will this study be able to pull some information about that? Yeah, because ah. depression is one of our outcomes that we're measuring. It's not the primary outcome, but it's a secondary sure. outcome. And, you know, wh wh what we can do is we can, we can say from the studies, the population studies that have already been done, we know that populations that have a greater consumption of fruits and vegetables have lower incidences of stress, anxiety, and depression. Not that it is the diet that's causing it, but that neuroinflammation, the swelling of the brain, heightens the experience of the mm -hmm. symptoms of depression, stress, and anxiety, so that it's, it's less tolerable, right? Mm -hmm. So like we talked before, depression is not caused by any one specific thing, but rather a way in which we move through the world that isn't in alignment with how we are supposed to be living as connected humans. This is the first time in human history that we've ever tried to be successful living alone, and it's not working for us, and it never, <clears throat> and it never will work for us. Um, we're so drastically disconnected from what is meaningful about being human and we all at the same time have a profound willingness to not want to understand pain and those two together just create a uh, like a perfect storm of emotional illness mm -hmm. um, and so yes we're going to have data that shows the impact of food and environment on depression anxiety self-compassion all these things well we can't wait to hear um, uh, more about your outcomes how long is this supposed to last so we need an n of 100 so we need 50 people in uh, the control and in the treatment diet, and we anticipate that it'll take about a year to capture that population. Mm. But we'll be we'll be creating we'll get we'll be gathering data all the way through. So we should you know within the next six months have preliminary data to talk about. And what's really cool is that even the control diet is a first of its kind study. It's never been studied. So by the time this overarching research is done, we're going to have like six research studies to publish. Mm. Sure. There's so much that has never been looked at. And we're, we're just so excited. I'm, I'm so excited because Tara is so near and dear to me. Like, I just can't wait for, the, for the, the overall research study to come out, the actual published work. <laughs> and under investigators, her name first and then Dean and Aisha second. <laughs> Like, I just, like, I just, I just, I just like, so I'll be, um, I, like, I will cry. I'll be so proud of her. 
<laughs> so. so let's share um, with our listeners your GoFundMe in case they want to help, you know, support the study. Yeah, so I have a GoFundMe campaign set up where we were trying, we're trying to raise $50,000 on GoFundMe specifically to cover the cost of the microbiome uh, uh, cost because sampling costs are one thing, but then also actually running the samples and all the other extra work goes into it. It's really an expensive process. Um, but you can also go to my website, plantbasedforpositivechange.org and make a donation to my nonprofit, which includes the imminent study. And I've also partnered with Mastering Diabetes. I'll be funding their research that's coming up. Oh, can you tell us a little bit about that, the research? I actually don't know what it is. Oh, okay, because I'm a little behind. They're releasing a book, right? They are, February 18th. Yeah, okay. You can pre-order pre it now on Amazon. You're welcome, Robbie and Cyrus. <laughs> <laughs> well, you sort of partner with them because you're also, um, you're a diabetes and food addiction coach. So are you part of the program then for the Mastering Diabetes? Yeah, I've been with Mastering Diabetes basically since it started. Um, a little over two years now. Um, I've been friends with Robbie for five years. I've known Cyrus for uh, close to that and Tara since 2016. So like these, these are, this is my second family. And so when they started Mastering Diabetes, Cyrus was actually staying with me in Austin. He was presenting at the global headquarters of Whole Foods. And he's asking me, he goes, you know, what, what's your dream job, man? And I was like, you know, I don't really know. I know at the time I told him, I was like, I know I want to end up doing research on mental health and, and nutrition, but I would love to work for a company like Mastering Diabetes. He's like, you know what, man, I just like, I feel so bad that, you know, when we actually started the company that we didn't have you join us, like, just tell me if you want to be a part of it, you're a part of it. And so <laughs> at the time I was working as a health coach for the Medical and Wellness Center Whole Foods Market and my contract was up. And there was a question of whether or not it was going to be possible to renew my contract and extend it for another year. I was like, I'm going to make this really easy. I appreciate everything that you guys have done for me, but I'm going to go work with Mastering Diabetes. I'm going to go work with my friends. And we're going to do this thing. And so it's been amazing. Awesome. Wonderful. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? How can people contact you? You mentioned they can support your nonprofit. Yeah, you can support my nonprofit. You can follow me on Instagram at plantbasedaddict. Um, but, you know, I always like to end it by... Uh, by making a statement to, to people because everybody knows someone who's struggling. Everybody knows someone who's suffering. And it's really important that I don't like people being identified by what they struggle with, right? So people who are depressed are not sick. They're human beings in pain. Mm -hmm. People who are suicidal are not crazy. These are human beings in pain. And people who are addicts are not criminals. These are human beings in pain. And if we stop if we stop identifying people by what they struggle with, it might be easier to listen to their needs. And if we listen to their needs, we may be able to see that their pain makes sense. Mm -hmm. And the best thing you can do for any of these people that you love that you know are struggling is go to them and say, I love you, whether you're struggling or you're not. Mm -hmm. I love you, whatever is going on in your life. And if you need me, I'll sit with you because I don't want you to be alone or feel alone. Because more than answers, people who are in pain just want to know they've not been forgotten by the world. And you can be that person who sits with them, who puts their arms around them when they can't hug themselves, who says, I love you when they can't say it to themselves. You can be the shoulders that hold the weight of the world for someone whose world has become too heavy. And in that moment, they are going to feel seen and they're going to feel heard. And they may actually ask you to stay with them. Um, I've lost 10 friends to suicide and overdose in the last seven years. Wow. Um, and this message is a message I wish I had said to them. Um, you know, don't worry about whether or not they're going to get angry or they're going to respond poorly. 
that's on them. Make sure you say this to someone you love because it matters. Thank you so much for your time, Adam. Adam, I just want to say, uh, you know, personally, uh, thank you so much uh, for uh, sharing your story. I, I know you've been doing it for a while, but it, it had to be a very brave, courageous thing to, to step out and finally get out there and start doing it. And you're, you're, you're changing people's lives. Oh, thank, thank you so, so much. much. That means a lot. And now you're contributing to science as well. <laughs> we feel really confident about the results that we're going to see. So we're excited. Oh, All right. It's thank been a pleasure. You. Take care. Thank, thank you. you been listening to the plant-based dfw podcast show if you like our content please like share and leave a review our goal is to provide quality episodes to help support the community